0: I'm Jack Zemlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2018 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series. Today's program, Pushing Populations and Production with Twin Row Strip-Till, is being brought to you by Topcon Agriculture. If this is your first time tuning in, you can subscribe to this series and get updates on future episodes currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if you prefer another app for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll look to get it added. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy Matters and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, Norax boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in the ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com growing solutions. Well, making the transition from years of full-width tillage to strip-till can be a process in itself, requiring equipment research, a nutrient management game plan, and realistic expectations. But Snowbird Michigan farmer Ryan Shaw saw enough incentive with strip-till during some initial experimentation that he adopted the practice across all 1,400 acres of his corn, soybean, and sugar beet operation. At the same time, a twin-row system was implemented for corn and soybeans. Ryan says they are seeing the advantages of a twin-row system and that each plant is better able to utilize available sunlight and with a quicker canopy, they are seeing better water retention and less weed pressure. And today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by TopCon Agriculture, Ryan shares the systematic setup and implementation of his twin-row strip-till system, along with the vital role cover crops play in his cropping rotation. We're at Snowver, Michigan. We are right in
1: the middle of what we call the heart of the thumb. <laughs> We're in a 32-inch rainfall area and 42 inches of snowfall. We don't see a lot of sun, about half, half of the days of the year we get sun, so that makes it kind of uh, challenging. Uh, normally we're, 80 degrees is about an average, it's a high. Where we're at located, we're, we can go 25 miles and we're to the lake, uh, 45 the other direction so we're part of a, quite a large watershed area, um, one of the largest in Michigan, uh, five and a half million acres. Conservation is something that's always on everybody's mind. We're always trying to spread the word. It's uh, getting a lot more popular with all the funding that's involved in it, but uh, we're trying to spread the word that even if there's not funding, that it, it should be something that we should be implementing in our area. Well, crop rotation on our farm, We're running uh, 1,400 acres and uh, we're 30 inch rows on the centers. Uh, We grow grain corn for ethanol, soybeans, and the big one that's kind of pulled our weight is the sugar beets. That's uh, kind of a four to five year rotation. We usually grow about 300 acres of sugar beets a year. We kind of make our crop plan around uh, the sugar beets and the corn and soybeans kind of falls into place depending on when the next time sugar beets is going to come around. The transition to strip-till, uh, we started our farm, SKS Farms, in uh, 2004 when my father split off from his family farm. We did about eight years of just the normal, the, the big plow, chisel plow, making powder out of the dirt. It was, it was kind of all we knew in our area. and. Uh, after about eight years then we started doing a lot of vertical tillage to try and get ourselves a little more familiar with uh, seeing all the residue on the ground and uh, seeing how we were gonna overcome that challenge with uh, all our sugar beets and stuff so in uh, the fall of 2014 we purchased a soil warrior and uh, we started making our strips and we chose a soil warrior because it was a coulter system we thought that it was the best option for us to get the nutrients incorporated throughout the whole zone. In our area, the soils wouldn't be real forgiving if we were to try and use a shank. We would just bring up too many clods and it, we'd fight it all season. So that that was a system that, that was gonna work for us. And uh, we could do our tillage and our fertilizer all in one pass. We uh, thought we would, nothing against the co-op or anything, but we we were paying too much to have them apply our fertilizer to get to the variable rate. So we decided that we could do it ourselves and and cut that cost. Soil Warrior had the option to, for the twin row widening kit for us. So that made it a lot easier to have a strip wide enough that we could hit it with our twin rows. We started uh, the first three years, we did run the deep cog to uh, try and establish a zone. We don't shift back and forth we have the same planting zone every year. We, we plant right over the root balls. So we ran the deep uh, tillage system for the first three years and uh, then we added the lead coulter kit to it and we've since then been flirting with being able to make fall berms. If we can make good enough fall berms, we will try to eliminate the spring freshening pass by planting right into what we call like a stale seed bed. I think now, with their lead colder system, it, it, that really eliminated a lot of our problems with that mid-rib. I think it all depends on the texture of your soils, where ours were varying so much across the field that we, we have a lot of ditch banks, and then it goes to blow sand and everything in between gravel veins that With the compaction that we cause with sugar beets, we, we, we needed to establish that first zone, so we, we needed it. Uh, we do all our uh, fall P and K. And then, uh, of course, then in the spring when we're freshening it up, we have the option to be able to uh, apply some N or some micros when we're freshening the strip up. In the spring, we we did the first year use some ESN, and then uh, the following years we needed a little weight in the machine, so we actually filled it with floor dry to get some extra weight and we, we joked about that it was too wet that we were applying the floor dry to dry it out so we could get out there. <laughs> We, we use RTK on everything. Uh, uh, as, as we got a little better at it, we started deciding where and where we were putting our covers, able to put our strips in between. When we went to go get a planter, we actually, uh, over our 1,400 acres, we always used to run a 12-row, 30-foot uh, standard planter uh, for our corn and sugar beets. But we always used just a regular grain drill for our soybeans, and we were putting down a lot more population than what we were seeing emerge with the controlled spill. So we wanted to get putting our soybeans through a seed plate. So we parked the grain drill as far back in the shed as we could. And uh, one spring, we, we were able to cover all the acres with, uh, with our one planter. So we decided that we could, it was time to update the planter. We could do it all with one machine. So we went with the M twin row and in the spring of 2015, We used that same planter to, they were able to customize it so we could use it to plant our sugar beets with and use just the tailing row unit. And then of course we set down the other row unit to do our corn and soybeans. Um, The the tailing unit has the hoppers on it so we're able to just to dump the sugar beet seed in the hoppers and not have to use a central fill system. It's a a little easier on the sugar beet seed as it's about the size of a baby; it's quite small. We, we added the hitch to the back of it so we could pull the yetter steerable wagon. Uh, it's able the, the capacity it gives us so that we can go into uh, a 40-acre field with a house notched out of it and be able to do it all without coming out and filling up. Uh, we had trouble with our saddle tanks before we put quite a slug of fertilizer down for starter. We were having to come out and fill up quite a bit. It uh, also has the tank on the front of it the 400 gallon tank. With our sugar beets, we're T-banding a, a fungicide over top of the seed trench as we're planting. So uh, to get those two tanks to always get empty at the same time was a challenge. So with this wagon, we were able to have a full load, a batch, and we could go do the acres that we wanted to and then leave the field. Uh, the hitch on the back then, we also got a, uh, ETS made the, the roller here. And uh, when we're done with our uh, corn and sugar beets, we unhook that wagon and then just hook that roller up so we can plant and roll in the same pass for the soybean. This was another picture of some things we've changed just in the few years that we've had this planter. When we originally got it, it had a single-disc fertilizer opener that split the two twin rows. And the first season, we weren't sure what it was that we were seeing when the corn emerged and was four or five inches tall. And when I was spraying, we, we, we stopped and we went out and started looking at the wheel tracks and the direction that the planter had went to try and correlate why one row of corn was greener than the other and the other seemed to be lagging behind. We couldn't tell if it was uh, the sidewall from the single disc opener with the shoe and whether it was the side the shoe was on or but one row was getting to that fertilizer a little faster than the other so we took those off and we got the uh total tubular the drops to drop it on each side of each twin row and uh this was our first season with that we didn't get the rainfall that we wanted right after planting to get that to drive in there was a little bit that was getting on the residue so we're definitely gonna adjust a few things for next year. We might put a little more uh, of our starter and micros and our end through our soil warrior to get it incorporated in the zone for almost uh, two modes of action in case the weather doesn't cooperate. Mm-hmm. Then why the twin row? Uh, it allows us to get to higher populations. We felt that higher yields, you had to get more ears out there. More ears meant a higher yield. But uh, in a single row, we just, we, we didn't feel that we could get the higher populations, that the, the varieties were working on in the hybrids, but that we needed to give each root ball a little more room to expand. And we felt it utilizes the little bit of sunlight that we do get up there. A little more efficient use of water, the canopies a lot quicker. We were trying to eliminate some of our herbicide sprays and, and try to back down how many passes we were having to make across the field. And it, it gave us the chance to, we could use our existing uh, equipment we already had As we could still use our 30 inch corn head and our sprayer. The twin rows left us 22 inches for a, uh, our wheel track. So uh, we didn't have to change a bunch of tires and, and get things to fit. And this is a picture of some early soybeans we put in. We found that they'll, they'll grow to that certain stage and then they'll grow away from each other and canopy quite quick. 30 inch row soybeans in our area take quite a while to finally canopy enough. And we were seeing a lot of, they, they weren't necessarily um, escapes, uh, the weeds. I think that they were just germinating and then when leaf dropped, it gave them a chance they got the sunlight. And then of course, once those weed seeds go into the combine, you take them to every field you go to. <laughs> And we, we do have quite a bit of Roundup-resistant stuff in our area that has come in and started to cause a lot of, a lot of issues. That would be where, uh, when we make our strip, we're berming it up quite a bit to, uh, with the rolling basket on the back of our row unit. And then where, I guess, the, uh, the marks right here would be on our planter. The inside rows where there is space, we have a wide depth band to carry the row unit. and then. Where it's buddied up to the twin, it has a, a narrow one. So that, that's where it's pushing down um, and riding on it. So it, it does leave a little rib down the middle, but it, is, it seems to be good for us because when we do get rain, it keeps it from oversaturating our strip and, and gets it over to where the corn is. We have the, the uh, concave baskets that kind of shape it. And I I believe our baskets are 18 inches wide. So we were making, when we first started, it was, we were making somewhat of a, like what we considered a 15 inch strip. So half and half. We've since now started tapering in our confinement wheels to try and narrow that up as narrow as we can get and let the basket fan it back out. (laughs) We've just felt that it it gave everything more room to grow. I got this picture off of the internet. We felt that land was quite expensive in our area. Why not use more of it that you already own, that you you can't go out and just buy another acre to try and get more plants out there? And the sunlight's free, so we should capture more of it. In our standard 30-inch rows at a 38,000 population, we were only using around 14.5% of each acre. And uh, in our area, a lot of people went to narrow row to the 20 inch. They started there, but it, it ended up it didn't work for sugar beets as we spray about six times after for a fungicide. The tires on the sprayers to carry the big sprayers were too wide and it would touch the beet rows and pop them out of their row. So guys were actually spraying their sugar beets crossways to eliminate that. So a lot of guys then moved to 22 inch, another odd one. We feel we're using about 45% of each acre and that allows us to get the higher populations out there without having to spend the money on the extra acre, or they don't make any more dirt. You usually have to take it away from someone else that's farming and that makes hardship in communities. We're also trying to implement controlled traffic to a certain point. The sugar beets kind of eliminates that for us to a certain extent. With, uh, we, do, we don't take the semis out in the field. We uh, try to make the truck drivers back in off the road and uh, we cart everything from the harvester to the headlands to load them. Most of our equipment is uh, 30 feet wide. Uh, our soil warrior, our planter, our interseeder that we built and our cornhead is all 30 feet. Our soil warrior axle matches up to our combine axle Of course, everything's widened out to 120 inch centers, so we're eliminating our pinch rows to try and get rid of that and confine our compaction to one area. We felt it was a lot easier to make compaction than it was to get rid of it, so we wanted to zero it in on one area. We even put an extension on our combine auger to allow the grain cart to be on a planter tram line. he will continue when he's full, he'll continue on to the headland before he turns. We try not to ever turn in the center of the field, but I know in some of your guys' fields are quite big, that's probably not possible. Where we're at, it's fields are quite small, you know, the 40, we we got, they're half miles, is as big as they're gonna get. We built a side dresser that was 60 feet. That, was a little bit of a challenge to figure out how we were going to get away from our borders. Uh, We run a 90-foot headland. um, How we were gonna side dress our headlands because when we're side dressing our sugar beets, we also set up a bander to band another quadris over top of the sugar beets. So we had to figure out a way to get away from our borders, telephone poles, all that good stuff so that we we didn't miss anything. And then of course our sprayer was 90 feet. So we're always, some tram lines get, you know, the, all three implements are gonna go across it. So we have seen areas in the field where we have built too much compaction. So now we're trying to, we don't wanna move our tram lines, but we are a little more picky when we go in. If the side dresser has to go in, he course, has to get away from the boundary but he'll try to change where he's at the next year and when I go into spray I will just get away from my border and I can tell where I was the year prior so I just jump over another 30 feet and then continue on.
0: We'll get back to Ryan's discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible. Agronomy matters, and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship. With precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use, visit them at topconpositioning.com/growing-solutions. While Ryan discussed his reasoning and motivation for the move to twin-row strip till, and the ability to plant higher corn populations, he said that for him to increase yields, that required getting more ears in the field, which he didn't see as attainable in a single-row system. Planting 30-inch corn, Ryan estimated that they were only utilizing about 14% of each acre. And now, in a twin row system, he says they are up to about 45% of each acre, allowing them to plant higher populations without having to add land. As Ryan put it, they aren't making any more dirt, so his philosophy is to do the most with the acres he already has. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Ryan Shaw on his incorporation of cover crops into his twin-row strip-till system.
1: So then we started into the, some of the cover crops. We'd always dabbled with them a little bit. We we did some radishes and for the nematodes, for the sugar beets, and uh, we'd always played around with uh, weed or rye. We even, uh, with the old planter, we took insecticide boxes and ground out the the little cog wheel and we would put wheat in it when we planted our sugar beets and sprinkle wheat over the row to get it to establish for a windbreak. just because the beets would get up about yogi big and they would the wind would come and it'd just shear them off right at the ground and you'd have big patches to go in and replant so that, that was kind of how we started and then uh, a few different methods that we tried we uh We got the Bruce's tractor and spreader. That was uh, the tractor supply spreader that we built the whopper topper for. He would actually go out and he could spread 30 feet with that and the neighbors thought we were kind of goofy but we would go out and we would spread on the sugar beets prior to harvesting them and uh, a lot of it would get caught in the leaves and everything but when we came through with the defoliator it would spread that all over the place. And then of course the lifter would throw enough dirt. We had some of the best establishment with that system and uh, especially in the early dig when we were doing it in the end of August. And uh, we don't have a whole lot of time once uh, the main sugar beet permanent pile is usually starts October 20th and we sometimes freeze the 10th of November. So we don't have a big window after harvest so we needed to find a way to get it on before the crops were coming off. So of course we tried the airplane, and we we got lucky that we had a good operator. He'd call on a Saturday and say it's gonna rain Monday. I want to fly Sunday. So we'd we'd make sure we were at the airport for him. And we had three good years of establishment, but we knew we couldn't get lucky every year and get that rain. And we felt we were we were putting you know a bushel and a half on. So we wanted to cut that cost, that we felt we were, we were going with that rate, because of course it was just landing on top. So we decided, uh, we actually then used a grain drill, and we had a 20-foot no-till drill. We would go into our soybeans, and as soon as they were harvested, and we would drill in rye. But then uh, a month later, when we'd come in to make our fall strips, with the RTK, we were ripping a perfect two rows out. So, we decided we could cut our cost in half by not planting those two rows, but the 20-foot drill. If we were to block those holes off, we were only using 10 foot of the drill. It was just not very efficient. So we decided to build this inner cedar, mostly to put our fall cover crops down, and uh, put them between our planting zones. Last year was the first fall we tried it, and of course it was, it was late. It was into November, and. Uh, It was kind of like frost seeding, but uh, it froze three days later, so we've seen nothing in the fall. But of course, the next spring, it was there and it came. So uh, we'll stick with it. Uh, We were able to use that interseeder then to play with interseeding the corn. Um, We did go in and interseed 500 acres of it because we had it, and we had a lot of people in the area that were interested in it. So we figured we'd give it a whirl, but we haven't got any rain after we did it, so we have some establishment, but it, it's gonna be patchy, but we'll try it again next year. We're putting rye down in the fall. Uh, our interseeding that we did, we did a seven-way mix. It was four clovers, uh, buckwheat, a rapeseed, and some annual ryegrass. It was very small increments of each one. We, it was an 11-pound rate per acre is what we put on to keep the cost down. Um, we did see that we, we put quite a slug of 28 down when we're side-dressing. Uh, we're going to adjust that next year and try to get more on with the soil warrior in the zone. We thought we'd seen some seed burn anywhere where the interseeder drifted over because we didn't get enough rainfall after we applied the nitrogen, that if we got too close to that hot spot, it, we seen some seed burn. This was the first year we did that interseeding on it. I guess with that big slug of fertilizer, we have actually seen where, uh, of course, our end rows or our center <laughs> is, uh, we had to pull our center coulter out of that side dresser so we could hook that wagon directly to our draw bar. So we dropped some hoses down to get the nitrogen in there. So it's actually getting a little more of a rate than the rest of it. We'll see. In the the rye that we flew with the plane last year that rye was a lot greener so there was excess nitrogen out there that wasn't being used when we were picking our cover crops we're trying to focus on goals of what what we're trying to accomplish with our cover crops whether it be to break up our compaction to retain or build nutrient levels most of ours was trying to suppress weeds that's what we were going for with our rye in between our zones was we wanted to let that rye grow up and just thick as we could and then lay it down to suppress some of those weeds. And the tendency is to see how far you can take it. So we let some grow up quite tall and lay it down and then see if you can eliminate a herbicide spray. And we had some fields that got dirty on us and some of them that turned out perfect, but it was a a learning process. Uh, some more was to you know build soil health, manage your moisture. And of course, the biggest one for us was to reduce the erosion. We have uh, some main rivers that go through our area and uh, you can get pockets in the back of some of our fields where you get down in a hole and you can't see the roads, you't can't, you can't your cell phones don't work, nothing and it uh, drops right down and goes to the river. And so we're trying to do our part to keep it out. And you can feed livestock with it. We, we haven't got into that yet. I think it'd be a good thing to be able to find somebody that could, could use that or we've just been letting it go back in and, and letting it melt back into the soil to try and build the health back up. We found in dabbling with the cover crops that we, we wanted to plan ahead a lot. We, we found that we were, people were getting interested in what we were doing and that they would ask us questions that maybe we hadn't even answered ourselves. So we, we, it opened our eyes that you needed to have a plan, that you could, you could have quite an investment in it and you could make a simple mistake that you overlooked and, and it all went out the window. So you need to know what your growing window is and, and what species you can actually use and, and what your time frame is. Probably most important, you need to know what your budget is, what, what you plan on spending overall per acre for that. And where you're gonna get your seed supply. I I know it's a up and growing thing is using cover crops. About everybody around us is, you can find anybody from a farmer that just wants to get rid of his wheat, that the price is too low to use that, or uh, you need to find someone that knows what they're selling. We we did with our experience just this year when we were trying to find a blend to put in an interseed, we just kind of come up with a random, you know, seven things we wanted to use. And, and I talked to the first guy and, you know, I, he was going to sell me a $45 an acre mix. And then when I talked to the next guy, he told me why each one only wanted to be in certain increments for what we were trying to accomplish. And the biggest one was I didn't realize how fast buckwheat grows. He said you don't want to put too much of it in, not because of it going to seed, but with you putting it all below the canopy of the corn anyway, that buckwheat would come up so fast it would double shade your other species that were in there. So you know, it was those things that we had never thought of that somebody that's experienced in it is going to be able to point you in the right direction. And you need to know what your herbicide program is. We use pre's on our corn and soybeans. So we weren't sure by the label, you shouldn't be able to grow any of those that were in there. (laughs) But uh, the rate was small enough with our sugar beets, we have to be very careful with rotation that uh, some of them herbicides will hang out there for quite a while and show up in the sugar beets. So we kind of had an idea what we could get away with. And since we weren't going to be feeding it, we thought that we should put some of those in there to see what kind of window you could actually get something to germinate in. And you need to know how you're going to terminate it. Whether you're going to terminate it, let, let nature do it with a frost kill, we get pretty hard frost, so it'll, it'll take care of any of them. Or if you're going to use a herbicide to kill it in the spring. We, this next year we were thinking about trying to uh, condense our cover crops in our zones and put a winter kill in our planting zone and our rye and stuff in between uh, our plant zones and let not go in and put any strips down in the fall and let that melt down and winter kill and then go freshen that strip up in the spring. So it it makes a lot of different options and it depends on what your crop rotation is, what, what crop came off of that farm and what crop you're going to put in there next year, and what you're expecting to see out of it? This was the interseeder that we built. It was just a uh, an old cultivator we had sitting in the shed from before Roundup Ready sugar beets. We cultivated a lot. Couldn't get rid of it. Nobody would give us anything for it. So we stripped it down. Um, we met Carson out here at the last last year at the strip till conference and. Uh, he hooked us up with some Don Duo seed row units and uh, the Valmar box for the delivery system. We went in on June 21st. July 10th, that's what we had. It was very patchy. Uh, we didn't see much rain, so you could find those areas where there was a great establishment, and then you found areas where it didn't. We, uh, we did learn about, when we used it in the fall, you know, blowing rye seed and we were doing, you know a bushel, an acre. You could have the fan sped right up and blowing it out there because it is going through a seed disk opener, a dual one, but it's still blowing it, and there's that drop area. With the small seeds, you can we didn't see any separating in the tank or it filtering itself out. But we noticed that the small seeds could, at too high a pressure, hit the bottom of the seed trench and come back out. Those are just a few things that we learned along the way and we just adjust and try better next year. Yeah, it goes down, it's a dual uh, uh, disc seed opener, uh, the staggered, and then it has the drop tube that would then have a tube in there that was squeezed down, kind of ovaled, and it just directs it down into the seed trench. We didn't get any deflectors yet, we thought in the future if we ever wanted to we could change the combination of where our hoses are. And we have 24 outlets, so we could plug off a hole and wire it, so we could still use all our openers, but we could put diffusers in between each row and fan a certain product out if we wanted to, put a divider in the tank and run two separate covers. And just some take-home tips is, we've learned to adapt, to improvise and overcome um, you need to be flexible and learn to adapt. That things are changing at quite a high speed. That uh, not everything is going to work in on your farm, but there's some things that may work on your farm that won't work on mine. But you just the communication between farmers and what works and what doesn't work is is huge. Events like this are are great to spread the word about what does and what doesn't because. Somebody fails at something. It's better to let only one person fail than let everyone break the ice themselves. And to plan and dream for the future, that some ideas may seem crazy, but you uh, you can always dream about them. You might implement them on a small little pie-shaped field or something that it maybe not it isn't as high productive, and so you you can play with it a little bit. That. It's not always, I guess we're coming into a time that some of the crazy things are the new way to do things. And you should always have a plan for the next season. We found that uh, we're making crop plans for two or three years out. And then, you know, of course, those change all the way down to the last minute. But uh, having a plan always makes you sleep better at night than waiting till the last minute and make some lofty goals so you can slowly implement them in small steps. If you do them in small steps, you'll you'll get there and you'll see things that maybe you tried that you won't try the next year, but uh, you know then. Share with your neighbors and your landlords because a, a lot of land is owned by people who don't farm their own land and uh, should use them as an asset that uh, they, they have the time to go to the coffee shop and spread the word for you. And if you, you put in the time with your landlords, they will, they'll, they'll work for you.
0: Well, thank you, Ryan, for sharing your perspective on why Twin Row Strip-Till has been a transformative change, along with some of the initial lessons learned involved. And we'd like to thank and recognize our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for again helping make this strip-till farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies daily e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at StripTillFARMR and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. And I'd like to invite you to join us at the 27th Annual National No-Tillage Conference coming up January 8th through the 11th in Indianapolis. The theme of the 2019 event is Pathways to higher No-Till Profits and will feature a mix of general sessions, classrooms, and roundtable discussions. Look for speaker announcements and more information at notillfarmer.com. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on October 19th for the next episode in our 2018 podcast series. And a reminder that you can still register to receive our Strip-Till Farmer print publication at striptillfarmer.com. For Ryan Shaw, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening.